Uh, are you guys doing good this morning? Anybody tired? You feel a little worn out already from the weekend? I want to read you one of my favorite stories. If I've read it to you before, I apologize, but it's worth hearing again. And let's be honest, if I've read it before, we probably don't remember it. It's about a little bird named Chippy. Chippy the parakeet. It goes like this. Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second, he was peacefully perched in his cage. The next, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. The phone rang, and she turned to pick it up. She barely said hello, and Chippy got sucked in. The bird's owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened the bag. There was Chippy, still alive, but stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under the running water. Then, realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hair dryer and blasted the pet with hot air. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who had initially written about the, uh, uh, about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits there and stares. It's, it's hard to see why. Sucked in, washed up, blown over. It's enough to steal the song from the stoutest heart. Can you relate to Chippy? Many of us can. One minute you're seated in familiar territory with a song on your lips, then the pink slip comes, the rejection letter arrives, the doctor calls, the divorce papers are delivered, the check bounces, a policeman knocks on your door, and you're sucked into a black cavern of doubts, doused with the cold water of reality, and stung with the hot air of empty promises. The life that had been so calm is now so stormy. You're hailstormed by demands, assaulted by doubts, pummeled by questions, and somewhere in the trauma you lose your joy. Somewhere in the storm you lose your song. Anybody feel like chippy this morning a little bit? Or maybe sometime in your life you've felt the reality of chippy's story. Sucked in, washed up, blown over. We're in a, a series that we're calling Ugly Faith. Uh, we're in week three. If you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, that's okay because uh, each week uh, doesn't necessarily build on the other. If you've missed two, you can catch them online, but that's fine because you haven't missed uh, anything that you're not going to make sense of this morning. We're working through the book of Hebrews chapter uh, 11, and really in Hebrews 11 is a list of characters, people from this uh, first half of the Bible that's called the Old Testament, who were these examples of faith. And what we've seen over the last couple weeks, and we'll continue to see for the next few weeks, is the reality is that even though these folks are hailed as examples of faith, man, they're pretty ugly. <laughs> and life is pretty ugly around them. And that's just the reality. Hopefully, you've got the North Point app open if you're using that, if you use that regularly uh, to this morning. Uh, Hebrews 11, there's some fill-ins that we're going to do. I have some fun with that. Um, well, there's also going to be some verses that are there. Those Bible verses will pop up on the screen behind you. But like last week, we are going to do a little bit of story today. And all those verses aren't in the app, won't come up behind us. I'm just going to walk us through that. So if you have a Bible, you'll probably want that open into the book of Genesis as well, somewhere on your lap, or if you use an electronic Bible, then maybe you'll ping between app and, and Bible version or whatever. Sound good? Just to set the plate, that's kind of where we're starting. We got that open. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 11, I want to introduce you to the next character. Her name is Sarah. 
And this is what it says about Sarah in Hebrews 11, 11. It says, And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Sarah, because of her faith, was enabled to have children. Now, if we were Jewish, if this was a group of Jewish boys and girls, like we would know this story. Matter of fact, uh, ladies, you've probably heard about Sarah from the time that you could pay attention. Matter of fact, when you would go to your room later and play with your toys, you'd probably have Sarah dolls instead of Barbie dolls. Uh, this story would be so familiar to you. It would be a tale that you've told, uh, your grandma told your mom, and your mom told you, and, and boys, you've heard this story as well because you've heard Abraham story and Sarah was married to Abraham and so this would be something that would be in our cultural DNA. We would know this story but because most of us aren't Jewish maybe we've never heard this story before or maybe we've heard versions of the story or maybe we've seen flannel graph if you're old enough to remember flannel graph uh, versions of Sarah on screen or if you've seen movies or whatever but I want us to actually take a look at the real story of Sarah this morning. My hunch is that I'm going to cause some problems. If you've, this is just a disclaimer, if you've been uh, in church for a while, uh, you've maybe heard Sarah and you've heard preachers preach or Sunday school teachers talk or videos say about Sarah and what she did or didn't do. And, and I have no doubt that um, I'm, some of you will walk out of here going, I don't think they should let him preach ever again. And that, that's quite all right. You might be absolutely correct. And I just want to offer, if, if you walk out of here with some churn, I would love to sit down and talk more about this with you. Uh, in, in this environment, I'm going to move quick. And so, um, you know, that is what it is, and you don't get the opportunity to ask a lot of questions back, but I just want to make myself available. We can sit down. If you buy coffee, I will come. So there you go. Here we are in Genesis chapter 16. I just want us to see this story of Sarah, kind of the mad dash through Sarah's life. Genesis 16 in verse 1, it says this. It says, now Sarai, if you just remember Abram, uh, when we met him last week, his name was Abram, then God changes his name to Abraham later. This is the same with Sarai. He will change her name to Sarah. We'll just call her Sarah because it makes the most sense. It says, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. I'll just pause there for a minute because I want us to feel this. Abraham's wife, Sarah, had borne him no children. Children were a big deal in this culture. I, children are maybe a big deal in every culture. It's not like that's the only culture that children were a big deal. I mean, we, we, we in our culture, get married, and, and not everybody has kids. Some can't, some choose not to. That's fine. But, but the average, maybe normal, I, I don't know what normal means, but it's kind of like kids are on the horizon, like that's part of the picture. And for most people, maybe that's a, a, a joy and a plan for them. They want to have kids. Well, in this culture in particular, kids were vitally important. In our culture, we have kids because it's fun. I don't know if that's true. It's fun, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's lovely, and all those things, and it's difficult and challenging, and it helps us rely on God in ways that I never knew I was going to have to rely on God uh, before. But in that culture, having kids was vitally important, partly because it was the retirement plan. There's no Medicare, there was no government agencies, there was no 401ks. And so when you were too old to farm anymore or shepherd anymore, you rely on your kids to provide for you. So having kids was kind of important. It was a big deal. That culture too had this thing about, um, they felt like if a woman couldn't have kids, she must have done something wrong and somehow the gods were displeased with her or the gods cursed her. 
So having kids was a big deal in that culture and not being able to have kids was a big deal in that culture as well. And so this, this, this first verse in chapter 16 tells us a ton of info that Sarah was not able to bear children. Now they've been married, her and Abraham. We'll find out their age here in a second. They've probably been married for somewhere around 50 years. Now I'm just guessing on this. I'm, I'm assuming maybe she was married around age 15, 16, 17. That wouldn't have been abnormal in that culture. That would have been kind of normal. You can pick whatever age you want. But they've been married for a while. What I want in your head is the fact that this is a couple who haven't been able to have kids for decades. It's not a couple who haven't been able to have kids for a couple years. And like the verdict is still out. Like this is a couple that haven't been able to have kids for like four or five decades. Can you feel that? Do, do we feel this a little bit? The, the sense of maybe heartache, the sense of frustration, the sense of disappointment, the sense of, God, what are you doing? Like, we'd make great parents. But, like, why on the planet would you say no to that? I don't understand. We've tried everything. We've done everything. And we just can't have kids. Fifty years later, my hunch is that they're probably pretty reconciled to this sadness that's part of their life. It was a the source of grief, tons of grief for both of them. Now, now, when Abraham last week, if we remember, he, God came to him and said, hey, I want you to go to a place I'll show you later. And he says, fine. He was about 75 years old when that happened. Abraham was about 75 years old. Sarah was about 65. She's about 10 years younger than Abraham. So she's 65 years old when God comes to them and says, you need to head out. Okay. And so then 10 years later, we get to chapter 16 of Genesis where it says in verse 1, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had born him no children. Keep going. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abraham, hey, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my, sa- my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. That weird? That make you feel weird? <laughs> You're like, wait, that can't be in the Bible, can it? So there's this situation where Sarah begins thinking through, okay, God promised Abraham 10 years ago that he would have a kid. I'm not able to have kids. What are the options left to me? Now, now uh, in that culture, this would not have been crazy. Like to say, hey, um, we're going to use a surrogate. Uh, we've got these uh, household maids, and so you take that one and, and have a baby, and then that, that's how we'll have a baby. Like, that wouldn't have been uncommon or seen as weird. I know in our culture, try not to put our culture into their culture, because in our culture we go, oh, that's not okay. This, nothing good can come of this. And that's actually true. We'll see in a minute. But, but in this moment, while they're thinking, they're thinking, hey, this, is, this maybe is a good plan. And so Sarah says, hey, I, that's maybe how uh, we'll be able to have this kid. And, and so uh, they, they, they move towards that uh, plan. Here's the point that I want us to just sort of get in our head, because it's not abnormal in the culture. And because of the time where God showed up to Abraham and said, Abraham, you will have a kid? It's very clear language that God says, Abraham, you will have a kid. It's kind of unclear, like, how that was going to happen. Probably a pretty good assumption that it would be through his wife, but they've been unable to have kids for, like, five decades. And so now they're thinking, okay, obviously it's not through me, says Sarah. So what do I do with this? Well, this seems like a good plan because God's been clear that it's Abraham's kid, but not so clear about my role in all this. Are we kind of together on this? Here's the point I want in our head is uh, I don't know that Sarah did anything overtly wrong. 
God was a little unclear on Sarah's uh, role in this, uh, in a culture that said, no, that surrogate concept was completely uh, fine. Sarah, I don't know that she does anything overtly wrong. God hasn't been explicit, and uh, and I don't know. This is the problem I'm probably causing, because maybe you've never heard it uh, quite like this before. But I'm not sure that Sarah's done anything overtly wrong. Now, we could make a good case from Genesis 2 that God created one man for one woman, and that's supposed to be the relationship there, and you'd be absolutely correct with that. I don't know that Sarah is thinking that way right then. She's just thinking, how do we help this kid situation comes along? And so then in verse, the end of verse uh, 2 there, it says that, that Abraham agrees to what Sarah says. The literal translation of that is Abraham hears his wife. So he hears her, he listens to her, he says, oh, that's actually not crazy. That seems like a decent enough plan. And we get to verse 3. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Uh Uh-oh. Now things start going south. And this makes sense in a culture that prized having children as a very high thing. And if a woman couldn't have children again, she was seen as cursed by the gods. And so when Hagar gets pregnant from Abraham, all of a sudden it's clear. It's not Abraham's problem. And so she gets pregnant and she starts looking at her, at Sarah and going, <laughs> I'm way better than, I don't know, fill in whatever that looks like. And we continue on. And so it says that she got pregnant and began to despise her mistress. And in verse uh, five, it says, then Sarah said to Abraham, this is my favorite part, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now she knows that she's pregnant and despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Abraham says, your slave's in your hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. And then Sarah mistreated Hagar. And so Hagar fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And it was a spring that's beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, what have you come from and where are you going? And Hagar says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress, submit to her. The angel added, I'll increase your descendants so much that they'll be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, you're now pregnant and you're going to give birth to a son and you're going to name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery and he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he's going to live in hostility toward all of his brothers. And so Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well is called Beher Lahai Roy, for it's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son that she had born, and Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. You get all this, right? It makes some sense. There's some obvious tension. It makes sense that there'd be some tension in the culture that they lived in and the situation that Abraham and Sarah have now uh, created with bringing uh, Hagar into the mix and a kid into the mix. And so Hagar's frustrated the way she's being treated, rightfully so. She runs off and we get this weird little mini story of faith in the midst of the actual story, which is about Sarah. But we get this little mini story of this Hagar who's an Egyptian and doesn't even know God's name. And so when God shows up to say, hey, where are you going? And just, just head back, and I've got a plan for you too. She doesn't know what to call him, and so she names him. Did you catch that? She names him, well, you must be the God who sees me, because you see me. There's something, I don't know, really sweet about that reality. In the midst of a story of Sarah, who's the example of faith in Hebrews 11, it's really Hagar that we see this little mini picture of faith. And so she heads back to an ugly situation with an ugly 
people in an ugly reality because she just has this trust in the God who sees me that somehow he'll work it out. Now, how we view what Sarah did with Hagar and Abraham and finding this surrogate situation kind of sets up a tension on how we're going to finish uh, this off. Because if we say that uh, Sarah was wrong, that she was moving ahead of God, that she should have waited for God to bring a kid through her, then we run the risk of living life doing nothing, always just waiting on God. Always just sitting and waiting If we say Sarah was wrong and she moved ahead and she shouldn't have done that, then we run a risk of just saying, well, then we'll never do anything until God gives me the clearest billboard on the planet. How many times does God give us the clearest billboards on the planet? Sometimes, right? All the time? Not always, right? Now, if we land on the other side and we say, hey, Sarah was like, she did a good thing. She was just being proactive and designing a course of action. If we say that, we run the risk of always finding ourselves outside of God's will. If we say, hey, Sarah did the right thing, man. She took culture. She took what she made some sense. She used some logic. She made a pros con list. And she said, no, getting this gal will be a great plan. If we say that's a good thing, she was just being proactive and helping God out. Then we do run a risk of being outside of God's will. See, there's a tension that's set up here. And so the question that all the smart guys that write commentaries want to answer is, is Sarah right or is Sarah wrong? And so by show of hands, and I'm just kidding, that would be really weird, right? Because I think the right answer is, this is theological, ready? I have multiple degrees, they hang on my wall, they collect dust. This is the answer from the multiple degreed guy. Is Sarah right or wrong? I don't know. I mean, it certainly creates some problems and we're going to continue to see it in a second. But is she right? Is she wrong? I don't know. What we do know is that Sarah was 76 years old when Hagar had her kid Ishmael. So if we hop over to chapter 17 and verse 15, we'll just kind of continue the story. This is 13 years later now, uh, 13 years since Ishmael was born, the 13 years that Ishmael has been the son of Abraham. In chapter 17, verse 15, it says, uh, God also said to Abraham, uh, God shows up, he reiterates this promise about uh, Abraham's going to be a father of many nations, I meaning he's going to have a lot of kids, and he's going to have lots of land and all this stuff. And I'm dropping in the middle of the conversation, I apologize for that, but in verse 15, it says, God also said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you're no longer going to call her Sarai, but you'll call her Sarah, and I will bless her, and she will surely give you a son by her. This is the first time that God has been explicit that this promised son is going to come through Abraham and Sarah. He says, I'll bless her that, so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And Abraham fell face down, and he laughed, and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. God, I'm old and she's old. Just use Ishmael. And then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you'll call him Isaac. And I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for the descendants after him. Thirteen years later, Sarah is now clearly named as the mom, the promised kid. Abraham laughs. That makes sense to us, doesn't it? We're some, I'm looking around, there's a lot of us in our 40s or over. And if, if, if like you found out you guys were pregnant tomorrow, wouldn't you laugh a little bit? You know, maybe you're at a point where you've, you've raised your kids, they're grown and gone. 
And, you're, and maybe some of you are like, well, that's what, that's what I want. I want that. I want to have more kids. Let's sign me up for nine more and praise God for you. But if I woke up tomorrow and Em was like, well, honey, I'd be like, oh, oh man. Right? So it makes sense. Abraham laughs. I don't think it's a lack of faith. I just think Abraham chuckles because it's funny. And he asks about Ishmael. He says, hey, can Ishmael just be the son? And God says, yeah, I got a plan for him too. But I got a much, much different plan, better plan, still a plan for you and Sarah. And in our heads, I want us to imagine Ishmael, the son who was born to Abraham and the maid 13, 14 years before. And for 13, 14 years, they've been thinking, oh, cool, this is the son God promised. And every day when they wake up in the morning and have their oatmeal and English muffin, Abraham puts his arm around uh, Ishmael and goes, you're going to be the promised son. And one day you will inherit all this in front of you and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the sea. Right? Every day. I don't know if it's every day, but you're with me. Every day. This has been the conversation they've been planning on Ishmael being this promised son. Until Tuesday. On Tuesday, God shows up, I don't know what day it was, and says, you know what, you, yes, I got a plan for Ishmael too. But you and Sarah are going to have a son. You're going to name him Isaac. He's going to be the one that I send the promise through. And Abraham has to be, as he's chuckling, oh, dang. For 13 years, we've been planning on it being Ishmael. And now that, uh, that was not God's plan all along. Oh, man, that got really weird and really messy and really ugly. 13 years. I, I don't know how much of this Abraham communicated to Sarah because this is God's conversation with Abraham. I have to believe that he communicated some of this. But when we jump into chapter 18 of Genesis, we get the picture where God actually is going to show up to make sure Sarah is clear on this as well. God's not taking any more chances with communication here. He's letting them know eyeball to eyeball. And so in chapter 18, these, these three men show up uh, to Abraham's tent and, and they kind of show up and Abraham starts like saying, hey, come on in and trying to be a good host because in that culture, uh, they had this uh, axiom that it was like, uh, you want to entertain strangers because you might be entertaining angels. That was kind of their thought process, and they were a very hospitable culture. And in this situation, it turns out to be absolutely true. These, these guys aren't guys. They're angels. And in the conversation, Abraham starts picking up on that, and, and potentially one of these angels is actually God. And so Abraham's thinking, these guys are not just normal guys. And so as the, um, the meal is getting ready, and Abraham is doing the preparations, he runs, and he grabs the lamb, and he starts cooking, and he runs, and he gets the pita bread, and he starts cooking, it, and he mixes the hummus together and brings it out and get them something to drink. And, and finally, he sits down to eat with them and they start talking. And in verse um, 9, one of the angels, potentially God, says this. Hey, where's your wife, Sarah? It's, I don't know if he had told him his wife's name or not or if they just showed up and, and, and they started talking. But they say, hey, where's your wife, Sarah? Which is kind of strange that they would inquire after the wife, potentially even a little bit uh, out of culture for that. So they asked him, where's your wife, Sarah? And he says, there in the tent, he said. And then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. This is the part of the Sarah story that, that many people know if they've heard this story before. They know this part. It says, now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him, and Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. Yeah. And so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my, and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return to you about this time, uh, point in time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid, and so she lied, and she said, I didn't laugh. And he said, yeah, you did. <laughs> and that's funny right there. 
And so Sarah hears this conversation. God wants to be sure that communication gets to Sarah. And so they concoct a conversation so they can ask about her, so they can declare this promise to her as well. I think knowing she's listening at the entrance to the tent. And so he says, you're going to have a son with Sarah. This time next year, I'm going to come back and you're going to have a little baby boy. And Sarah says, <laughs> fantastic. I don't know what she said, but she chuckles. And, and some people say this is a lack of faith on Sarah's part, and, and I don't know. I don't know if this is a lack of faith or if this is just a response to a, a really weird situation. Now, this, this next part's free, and I, can't, I, make, I don't want to make too big a case out of this, but there is something very culturally inappropriate going on there. Because in that culture, it would have been the female who would have prepared the meal. And so as these guests showed up, Abraham would have said, hey, let's get some food, and she would have been like, sweet, and she would have been running off to get the lamb and the bread and the pita and the hummus and, and whatever. And, and, and Sarah doesn't do that. Like, Abraham does that. that that's odd. And so it begs the question, why? Why is that the case? Why is uh, Sarah not doing that? And again, a woman her age, a woman that's lived that long in that culture, it would have been a pleasure for her to do that. She would have seen that as part of how she's going to welcome these, these guests. And so some of the really smart guys, the commentators who you know, live in towers and don't have friends and just write books all day long, they think potentially, I don't know if this is true, they think potentially she was uh, unclean. She wasn't able to touch uh, the food. She wasn't able to grab chairs. She wasn't able to engage with the guests because in that culture, there was some things that made a woman unclean. Ladies, are you with me? There's one particular thing that made a woman unclean. It came once a time every month to women before menopause, right? And so this gal, Sarah, is many, 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 many years past menopause, and is it possible that the reason she's not serving the food is because um, her cycle started on that day? Is it possible that partly why she laughs is because when she woke up in the morning, there was something going on that hadn't been going on in a while in her body. And maybe she thought, oh man, I'm dying because she's not had that for a while. And then as the angels pop in and say, hey, you're going to have a kid this time next year, maybe she's going... <laughs> This is fantastic. I don't know what's going on. Are, are you, I don't know if that's true or not. That to me just presents an interesting shade on this whole concept of what's going on in Sarah's head. Okay, let me just recap some ages and make a couple points and I promise I'll be done. I just want us to feel what Sarah is feeling in this point. I just want us to try, to try to get our heads into the game here. Here's the ages. Sarah was promised a kid at age 65. They're going to pop up on the screen behind me. There's some fill-ins if you want to put numbers down. Fantastic. I just want you to see them all in one place. She was promised a kid at age 65 after five decades of not being able to get pregnant. Somewhere four or five decades. She saw Hagar give birth when Sarah was age 76. About age 76 is when Hagar gives birth. All right, that's some, some years in there. All right. Sarah gets told she's going to give birth around age 89. And she gives birth at age 90. Now, even, even in this time of the world when lifespans might have been longer or whatever, these are old people. These are people well past the ability to have children. And I'm 43, and I think I am way too tired to have a little baby running around the house. And I can't imagine at 86 going, well, yeah, 89. Oh, bring on the baby. I want to get up at 2 a.m. and feed that thing. I just can't imagine. This is Sarah's reality. Now, here, here's the other piece of this is that uh, there, in the meantime, 
In the meantime, she, she tried to help figure it out by providing Hagar as a surrogate. That results in another kid who they thought would be the promised heir. But it turns out about 13 years later that he's not the promised heir. Now that kid is 13, making fun of the new baby. Can you say jealousy, drama, threats, problems, obstacles, blah, blah, blah. Sarah and Abraham were creating obstacles all over the place. Obstacles to the promise, obstacles to this, 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 this commitment, obstacles to what God wanted to do. What a mess. So what? Who cares? It's a story of an old lady a long time ago. What does it matter for us? I, I think Sarah's soap opera of a messy, ugly life connects to what we're talking about because she brings some new words into this concept of faith that we've tried to lay out every week. Matter of fact, we've said faith. We've used words like trust, confidence, hope, assurance. I think Sarah adds two words that I'd love you to just put in your head if you're using fill-ins to throw it down. The first, first word that I think she brings in her story is the word real. Like faith is real. Sarah is a great example how real faith exists in a real world which is real messy and real ugly. See, sometimes we, we take this word faith and it's become like this religious word. Like these other like weird church words that we don't use in, in culture, like sanctification. That sounds great, but like where do we use that in the real world? Like I'm driving my car and now I'm going to have some sanctification, right? Uh, uh, but faith, we've done that with too, you know? Uh, um, the word faith, it's become this religious word that has this mysterious thing behind it. And so we think of people who have faith are like these, these weird people who live in uh, monasteries or nunneries or whatever. They just dedicate their life to like this thing and they we just pray all day. Just pray all day. That's all they do is pray. Just pray all day. And you're like, ah, ah, I'm, I like Jesus. I want to pray and stuff, but all day, man, I, I, I want to eat too. Or what? Like sometimes we've taken this concept of faith and made it this weird religious thing. And I, I think Sarah is awesome because she takes faith and sticks it into the gritty, dirty, practical, necessary world. She made decisions. She made choices. Were they right? Were they wrong? I don't know. But, but, but certainly she was trying to move forward. And somehow in that, she trusted God would figure it out. Here's the other word that I want to stick in our heads for today. It's in Hebrews chapter uh, 11. It's from the ESV version of the Bible. Uh, normally I'm reading from NIV, but this is the ESV, and it says English Standard Version. It just says it a little differently. I think it's a great word. It says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, the ESV, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Here comes the word. The conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. See, conviction is a cool word. It's a cool word in the Greek because it's this idea of being absolutely sure of something, to be assured of something based on evidence, based on proof. It means being sure of something you can't really see based on the proofs that you can see. The concept of conviction. Convinced. Does that make sense? The idea of, I'm convinced that that's true, even though I can't see that, but I can see this, and therefore I can be convinced that that's true. See, we tend to only trust the things that we can see in our culture. We have this, uh, this, this addiction to things that we can see, and that's what we trust. I- I'm not picking on millennials or postmodern, but this has become a movement of the postmodern and millennial world is a distrust for just about anything, but surely a distrust for things that I can't see and hold intangibly. But the reality is that faith operates in things unseen, 
Matter of fact, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, the author of that is Paul. He might be the same guy who wrote Hebrews. We're a little unsure on who wrote Hebrews. I think it was Paul. He says this to the church in Corinth. He says, for we live by faith, not by sight. See, conviction is this idea of being sure of something that I can't see based on the things that I can see. Sarah is a picture of conviction. She couldn't figure out how all this was going to work together. But somehow her faith in God was rooted in the things that she could see. It might sound like this. Sarah had no clue how God was going to work out the promise of a child. She didn't have faith in her body. She didn't have faith in medical science. She didn't have faith in her husband's fertility. She didn't have faith uh, in fate or blind chance. She didn't even really have faith in the surrogate she chose. But she did have faith in God and what he promised. See, when it comes to being a fully devoted follower of Jesus, it's all rooted in faith in something unseen, based on the conviction of what we have seen, even when it's a huge mess, because this is real life, faith in the midst of the mess. See, and I love the fact that we get to try and figure out Sarah, because I don't, I don't know what faith looks like sometimes in the mess. And I'm not sure Sarah knew what faith looks like in the mess. She trusted that God somehow was going to work this whole thing out. Yep, she created some problems. Yep, she created some obstacles. But that didn't seem to shake God. Matter of fact, the NIV commentary, uh, smart guys wrote this. They have this great little paragraph on Sarah's story. They, they say this. They say, even though sometimes what we see as a solution turns out to be more obstacles for God to deal with, that doesn't mean that God disapproves of the paths that we seek out or that we should start feeling regrets for wasted time. With God, there are no dead ends, only training grounds. See, faith is there even when we create a mess. Because with God, there are no dead ends, only training grounds. Isn't that hopeful? And so as we make choices, and sometimes we mess it up, and we make choices, and sometimes it like puts obstacles in the way of God. God's not sitting up there wringing his hands going, oh no, what do I do? Sarah picked Hagar, I'm out of the loop now. And for God, I, I don't know what he's looking and thinking about that situation, but I know he's going, I got that too. We'll make it work for that. Right, because with God, there are no dead ends, only training grounds. Life is ugly. Faith is ugly. God's not bothered by this. Sarah's example of faith was because she considered him faithful in the midst of the ugly. God is faithful. It's all about who we put our faith in. Amen?